Well, here we are at the seventh edition of Blind Squirrel Macro, the pod. This is your Blind Squirrel speaking. This podcast is a companion to our weekly newsletter, which you can find for free at blindsquirrelmacro.com. The letter contains graphics, charts, and a multitude of links that I may refer to in this pod. It also contains our portfolio update and a review of our most recent Acorn trades. Each week, I record an episode based on the feature article from my Monday note, which covers one current business or finance topic in hopefully under 20 minutes. I've not yet mastered audio editing software and so record it in a single take, so please forgive any stumbles. But before we start, a very quick message from Legal. Everything in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is categorically not investment advice. Before making any decisions, for heaven's sake, don't listen to a cartoon rodent. Talk to a financial advisor. Now, the intro music was a bit of a hint, because last week saw Rupert Murdoch announce his retirement. The Murdoch media empire has been a driving force behind populist politics in the West. It's now having an impact on your retirement portfolio. This week's note is titled, The 6040 Portfolio Doesn't Work Anymore, The Murdoch Effect. Now, Blind Squirrel Macro does not do politics. If you're interested, the squirrel identifies as a politically homeless, raging centrist. While this may be no good for my blood pressure in the current political climate, I try to ensure that it has zero impact on my thoughts on investment and on the markets. You trade and invest in the reality that is in front of you, not the reality that you would prefer. As such, writing a note on a character as divisive as Rupert Murdoch is done with a high degree of trepidation. Whatever your politics, the degree of control that an unelected billionaire has over the levers of power in several countries is something that, quite frankly, should trouble everyone. It is also a golden opportunity for, for me to talk about my favourite TV show, Succession. If asked what my three favourite TV shows were, I would answer Succession seasons one, two and then three. It's even the ringtone for my mobile phone. Rupert Murdoch's note to his staff last week was certainly straight out of the Logan Roy playbook. He finished with the somewhat menacing line, When I visit your countries and companies, you can expect to see me in the office late on a Friday afternoon. These are not the words of a leader that has truly given up the reins of power. To quote Logan Roy, this time standing on printer printer paper boxes at ATN, Anyone who believes that I'm getting out, please shove the bunting up your ass. Anyway, however the real however real the retirement Murdoch announced last week turns out to be, it's an opportune time to reflect on the impact of his media empire on Western politics and what this means for your retirement portfolio. To get there, we're going to channel the work of two of my favourite strategists, Clocktower's Marco Papich and T.S. Lombard's Dario Perkins. Marco's analytical model, which he set out in his great book, Geopolitical Alpha, revolves around the concept that democratically elected politicians are constrained by the wishes of the median voter that elects or re-elects them. Last week, he posted what he calls his favourite, current favourite chart, charting how the correlation between the benchmark, but between benchmark US bond yields and Chinese credit growth broke down back in 2017 when the Trump administration passed the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Dario and his team have been pulling on a similar thread. They point out that the electoral popularity of fiscal largesse and protectionism that was unearthed around the West during the pandemic has given elected leaders a taste for large-scale economic intervention. 
So much so that it's creating an absolute nightmare scenario for the neoliberals. Voters are actively looking to their governments to help to ensure the availability of health and social care, secure living and employment standards and security, control prices, and even fix income and wealth inequality. What started with a few stimmy checks has now morphed into an explosion of deficit spending, with governments seeking to even get directly involved in industrial policy. Just take a look at the Inflation Reduction and Chips Acts in the US. Big government has never been bigger, and it looks to be super popular with the electorate too. The problem with neoliberalism is that its core economic mantra of low taxation and less, or I should say, completely unregulated corporate activity does not really pique the interest or, or the support of the median voter. That voter requires a little more nudging. To create a broader electoral coalition, the populist playbook has worked wonders in recent years. The rise of populist politics in the West accelerated in 2016 with the UK's Brexit referendum and the election of Donald Trump. The economic merits of cuts in US taxation, or in the UK breaking free from the regulatory shackles of the EU single market, would never have carried either vote in their own right. That is where Mr Murdoch and the ruthlessly efficient culture war machinery of his media empire came into play. Now, you could argue that a backlash against globalisation and the 30-year triumph of capital, i.e. corporate profits, over labour, i.e. employee wages, was ultimately inevitable. However, I think it takes a lot more than pure economic arguments to drive such a rapid change. Economic populism now looks like it's here to stay, and it is also pretty inflationary. Those auto worker unions in the US certainly think so. Inflation guy Michael Ashton's blog last week was brilliant on this topic. In his study, inflation and inflation expectations are the biggest driver of union wage demands. Michael has created a chart which I put in the letter which plots strike activity versus consumer price inflation since 1975. He concludes that the longer inflation stays higher, the more power unions have, and the more power unions have, the more momentum for inflation has. Another, even scarier entity does not like what it sees, the bond market. Last week's weakness in the US Treasury market was really only the latest chapter in the drawdown in OECD government bond markets that started last year. There are still plenty of bond, bond bulls out there, but the squirrel does not think that this bond market's problems are truly over yet. I was going to include that famous James Carville quote about wanting to be reincarnated as the bond market so that he could intimidate everyone, but guess what? I found an absolute gem of an economist cover instead from October 2016. A quick reminder, there is always an economist cover. Anyway, this one styles the legendary bond vigilantes of yesteryear as a bejeweled lapdog with the taunting headline, Who's Scary Now? To be fair, the curse of the economist cover normally takes less than nine years to kick in, and that magazine cover was in October 2016. Those vigilantes are now back with a vengeance, or maybe it's just a buyer's strike in Treasury bonds. But anyway, what do they say about revenge being a dish best served cold? Now, there are plenty of cries of central bank policy error in the air. The squirrel is increasingly unsure as to whether the central bankers in fact have the choice to lower rates if they are to stick to their inflation control mandates. 
The charge of being too slow to roll back monetary easing still stands, but now the inflationary pressure from fiscal spending leaves central bankers in a complete bind. Which brings us on to the bonds and their role in the 60-40 retirement portfolio. Andrew Beer, of DBMF fame, was back on the Top Traders Unplugged podcast earlier this month. As ever, it was an excellent listen, and there's a link, link to it in the, in, the, in the note. He observed that a world in which bonds can lose value at the same time as stocks creates an existential problem for the savings industry. I quote, The thing is that the entire asset management industry, every pension plan, every family office, every RIA, every wealth management firm has built their businesses around an inverse correlation between stocks and bonds, and it looks like that's over. To illustrate this, I created a very, very simplified 60-40 portfolio with Coifin's new model portfolio function, which I've included in the letter. Last year, a portfolio made up of 60% SPY, the S&P 500 ETF, and 40% TLT, the long bond ETF, delivered precisely what its all-weather nature was supposed to avoid, a bone-crushing drawdown of 23.31%. The inverse correlation between equity prices and bond prices that has been dominant since the early 2000s appears to have flipped. The bond element of the 60-40 protected portfolios during the tech bust of the early 2000s, the 2008 GFC, and the early days of the COVID pandemic. But then 2022 came along. With a couple of brief exceptions, bonds and stocks have been moving in lockstep ever since. I do not buy into the thesis that this is merely a temporary aberration. In fact, history tells us for most, of the thir- that for most of the 30 years leading up to the 2000s, bonds and stocks observed a positive correlation in price. This was also a period of heightened global geopolitical tension, the occasional commodity shock, and with high inflation and growth volatility. Is this ringing any bells for you guys? If bonds are going to provide the accustomed are not going to provide their accustomed drawdown buffer service, portfolios need to need a new risk diversifier. But what could that be? The asset gathering behemoths at BlackRock and Blackstone would like to have us believe that the private versions of stocks and bonds, i.e. their private equity and private credit funds, could fill that gap with their dependable low volatility returns. Well, you're familiar with the squirrel's view on those types of vehicles and their self-marking of homework problem. By the way, AQR's Cliff Asterson remains unbeaten on this topic. I suspect that Logan Roy would be more direct with one of his trademark fuck-offs. The other great pitch for low-vol returns is the giant multi-strat hedge funds such as Millennium, Citadel and Point72. Now, access to these funds is not really an option for a retail portfolio, and I'm also not so convinced that they continue to perform in a higher interest rate environment. Again, Andrew Beer is interesting on the topic, and I'm quoting him again. Everyone is obsessed with multi-strategy hedge funds today, and they have been magicians. Who would have thought in, the early, in early 2020 that you would have had a series of multi-decabillion funds out there leveraged five times or ten times or something that would skate through COVID, the recovery, inflation, and bang out returns? They're like 12% certificates of deposit. I mean, they're like hippopotamuses doing pirouettes on ice skates on the bow of a ship in a hurricane. You cannot believe they're pulling this off. He's written a blog on the topic, which, is, which I've linked to in the letter. 
He thinks, and I think he may well be spot on, that these funds could be dead money for a while. So what's left as an option? The rest of De Beers' conversation with Niels is focused on the role of trend-following or managed futures portfolios as a portfolio st- stabiliser. I have written about the squirrel's CTO curiosity before. I'm an owner of both Beers' CTA Replicator ETF, DBMF, as well as Simplify Asset Management CTA Managed Futures ETF. This exposure is something that I initially owned only as a way of ensuring that I kept a close idea on the markets where trend-following funds had notable long or short positioning. I'm now becoming increasingly convinced that this exposure provides me with a valuable portfolio risk diversifier. I've also spent a great deal of time playing with backtests on Dunn Capital's model portfolio builder. My plan is to allocate a meaningful, do-not-touch core exposure to the strategy via these ETFs, for the next few years, targeting a weight of about 20%. This is something that I know I have absolutely, absolutely have to outsource, as I do not have the temperament or indeed the discipline to execute a pure trend-following strategy by myself, and I've been sufficiently brainwashed by the CT experts like Niels Karstrup Larsen to understand that the squirrel's discretionary macro views are unlikely to be a helpful overlay. Machines have a lot more discipline than squirrels. Now, when it comes to fixed income, for all the reasons cited above, I really struggle to get excited about exposure to long duration in the OECD or US bond market, especially with the front end of the curve now yielding over 5%. Heavens, even interactive brokers will pay you 4.8% on US dollar deposits right now. I continue to like local currency fixed income exposure in emerging markets, especially Latin America, For retail investors, this can also easily be pulled off via ETFs or closed-end funds. I wrote about this and other sources of yield or income back in April in a piece that I called The Dilemma Facing Garfield's Barbell. So what else? In an inflationary environment, hard assets and commodities have proved to be very reliable in the past. There will certainly be plenty of focus on that area at Blind Squirrel Macro. My friend Louis Garve and Cuppy had a fascinating chat on Real Vision last week. Louis has been advocating the idea of energy, both energy stocks and the underlying commodity futures, as the goalkeeper or stabiliser for your portfolio. I found myself nodding my head extremely vigorously as I watched that show. Anyway, the quick final thought this week is on succession, um, and it takes the form of a quick public service announcement to fellow fans. If you love the show, you'll love the two things that I've linked to in this week's letter. The first is a 14-minute YouTube video in which the composer Nicholas Brittell explains explains the thinking behind his mesmerizing theme tune to the show. It's really wonderful stuff. The second is a seriously nerdy podcast series for the hardcore fans. Felix Salmon of Axios hosted a post-game podcast that dropped the morning after every show aired during the three seasons. It even includes includes some occasional guest hosting from the actress Jay Smith Cameron, who played um, squirrel favourite Jerry. You need to be a complete succession nerd, because there are at least 31 hours of it, but the pod, I think, has a great shelf life. Well, anyway, that's all for this week. In the written report, I've also got a full ACORN review and portfolio update covering everything from uranium to offshore equities to ags and to Goldman Sachs and private assets. Thank you very much for listening again. Please find out more about the squirrel at blindsquirrelmacro.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at squirrelmacro. Please also leave a rating or review on your app and I hope to catch you again here next week. Squirrel out.